So it's not just by chance that the gas canisters that are used in the West Bank and in other parts of Palestine showed up in Ferguson in 2013 or showed up in Oakland in 2014. Resistance is what gives me hope because resistance in and of itself is revolutionary. Resistance is what will save us. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. In Oakland, I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Well, it's our first podcast of 2017, and it's hard to know where to begin in terms of assessing Donald Trump's policies towards indigenous people, black people, migrant people, people struggling with poverty, people with uteruses, working people, people who want to breathe clean air and drink clean water, and people under the thumb of expanding U.S. militarism and settler colonialism across the Middle East. As the Electronic Intifada's Ali Abunima wrote earlier this week, since President Donald Trump entered the White House, Israel has announced a major new settlement push in the occupied West Bank. Occupation authorities gave final approval to almost 600 housing units for Jewish settlers in East Jerusalem on Sunday, and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowed there would be more to come. On Tuesday, the Israeli Defense Ministry followed up by announcing plans for 2,500 more units in settlements across the occupied West Bank. These decisions clearly stem from Israel's confidence that the Trump administration is likely to be even more pro-Israel than that of former President Barack Obama. We're going to be speaking with two activists who are having conversations with communities across the U.S. about the strengthening relationship between black liberation in the U.S. and liberation for Palestinians. But here's uh, some more of the news from this week. Israeli soldiers shot and killed an unarmed Palestinian boy when he was running away from them last month. Newly released video shows. The security camera footage published on Tuesday by the Israeli human rights group Betselem shows Israeli forces firing on a group of youths during a night raid on Beit Rima, a village near the occupied West Bank city of Ramallah. Ahmed Zaidani, 17, was killed, and a 25-year-old resident of the village was also shot and injured during the raid. 35 Palestinian children were killed by Israeli forces and private security guards last year, all but four of them in the, in the West Bank. Defense for Children International Palestine called it the deadliest year for Palestinian children in the West Bank in the past decade. Last week, Israeli soldiers shot and killed Kusai al-Amur, 17, in Tuku, a village near the West Bank city of Bethlehem. Video from the scene shows Israeli soldiers violently dragging away the boy after he was shot. You can read more about these stories on electronicintifada.net. Meanwhile, Defense for Children International Palestine also reports that Israel has the dubious distinction of being the only country in the world that systematically prosecutes between 500 and 700 children each year in military courts lacking fundamental fair trial rights. Children within the Israeli military system commonly report physical and verbal abuse from the moment of their arrest and coercion and threats during interrogations. The group says that it collected affidavits from 158 West Bank children detained and prosecuted under the jurisdiction of the Israeli military courts in 2016. The data shows that 62% of children endured some form of physical violence following arrest, and 52% were verbally abused, intimidated, or threatened. Of the 158 children, 25 were held in solitary confinement for an average period of 16 days, 
for interrogation purposes, an alarming increase over the previous year. The longest period of isolation for a child that DCI Palestine documented in 2016 was 29 days. Well, joining us to talk about Israel's ongoing abuses of the rights of children and how activists are working to highlight the intersection between fighting for justice for Palestinians and fighting for justice for people of color in the U.S. are two guests. Amanda Weatherspoon is a black liberation activist and is a minister with the Unitarian Universalist Church. And Nadia Tanous is a writer and an organizer. Both of them are from the San Francisco Bay Area and are on a speaking tour across the U.S. organized by Friends of Sibyl North America. Amanda and Nadia, so good to have you both on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you. So good to be here, Nora. So uh, you're joining us from Detroit. Actually, you just touched down there a couple hours ago, and and there was actually supposed to be a third member of your speaking tour. Uh, Tell us about Ahed Tamimi, who she is and why she's not on tour with you. Yeah, Ahed is a 16-year-old from the village of Nabi Saleh in the West Bank. And she is an amazing activist, a really courageous person, and extremely charismatic. Um, We had first envisioned that she would come and speak on the speaking tour in January. It was planned out around her winter break schedule. Um, And we applied for her visa around October 2016. We got notice from the U.S. consulate that um, they were putting her visa in administrative review, which is a black box. Um, You can't see into it. You can't add in files. Uh, Nobody that we talked to in the consulate seemed to have enough seniority to be able to look inside and tell us what was going on. Her visa is still an administrative review, and we are awaiting an answer from the U.S. consulate. Tell us more about Ahed and what's going on in Nabi Saleh and and, uh, and what's Ahed's activism look like. Oh, yeah. Um, So the village of Nabi Saleh is, again, in the occupied West Bank, is um, located near a freshwater well. And this freshwater well is a huge resource uh, for the village, but it's also a big magnet for the local settlement of Hanmish. So since 2009, uh, the villages of Nabi Saleh, including Ahid herself, um, even though she was just a child, as well as her father and her mother, Basim and Neriman Tanimi, uh, led these nonviolent protests in the village um, down to the water well in order to send a message that they weren't going to let um, the water well be taken from them by the local settlement. Um, and as we know, the settlement of Halmish uh, has been expanding. Um, and so in terms of why Ahed was chosen why she wanted to go on this tour around the United States is because she sees everyday struggle. She herself has been incarcerated. Her, many of her family members have been incarcerated. Um, and she's seen many things on a firsthand basis. But furthermore, she also sees the intersectionality between the struggle of people of color here in the United States and Palestinians there in Palestine. And she speaks to that herself. It's incredible. She's only 16. She has so much wisdom and so much life experience. Um, we were videotaping ahead once we realized about five days before the tour started that she was not going to be able to come to uh, join the tour. We decided that, you know, instead of stopping the tour and contributing to her silencing, we were actually going to amplify her voice. We said, no, we're going to go forward. We're not going to put it on hold. There's no guarantee of when this visa will come through. So we're going to have her talk to people in her own voice. And so in a period of five days, we had a professionally 
uh, tape video, an interview uh, from a Palestinian director in 48. It was edited by a Palestinian American in New York, and it was translated by me and my family. Um, and, you know, and a lot of the B-roll, she speaks to uh, the intersectionality between the struggle for Palestinian justice and the struggle for liberation of Blacks and Mexican Americans and Native Americans and Arab Americans and people of color in the United States. That's the voice of Nadia Tanous. Um, Nadia and Amanda, let's talk about the tour, uh, No Child Behind Bars, Living Resistance from U.S. to Palestine. Tell us about why you're touring the country um, and, and amplifying Ahed's voice and, and what kinds of conversations you're having, especially at this moment in time when Donald Trump is in the White House being aided by white supremacists and ultra conservatives. Uh, Trump is also threatening to send in the feds to cities like Chicago and is uh, you know, seeking to expand militarized police forces while cutting social services, health care. Everything is on the table. Uh, and this is, of course, after eight years of the Obama administration setting up these kinds of structures, including being the most pro-Israel administration in history uh, so far. Uh, Amanda, tell us about why you're on this tour. Why now? Well, I think that, first of all, I think that people are in a position where they're really ready. They're ready to act. They're ready to, to get out there, to be mobilized. Um, people who previously really weren't are out in the streets, are out. Um, in the hundreds of thousands. And so this is a really important time, just politically. Uh, our tour is not in reaction to the election of Donald Trump, but it certainly falls during a time when people are kind of ready. And so our tour, what we do, a lot of what we do on this tour is we talk about foundational issues. We talk about how things connect. We talk about frameworks. So while we are focusing on Palestine and the U.S. in terms of state-sponsored violence against youth and children, we do this through an intersectional approach. So, you know, we talk about militarizing of the police. We talk about the fact that, you know, the U.S. incarcerates more people per capita than anywhere in the world. We talk about what structural racism is and the role that that plays. Um, we talk about dehumanization and criminalization of youth. So we do talk about the issue of the apartheid in Palestine and the apartheid in the U.S., but we do it looking at frameworks and connections. I think right now that that's really important for people. I think people are starting to really engage these issues in a way that they haven't before. And that's very important to keep us sustained in the days and weeks and years to come with the work that we have to do. Yeah. And so, I mean, I've been, this is kind of a full circle for me because I was hired by Friends of Study in, in 2013 as a researcher, actually, into child detention issues in Palestine. Um, and at the time, I was called forward um, to find a company target. Um, you know, who's responsible? Who is profiting off of this system? Um, and so we found and we focused on, as you know, Nora, uh, G4S, Group for Secure Corps. And, you know, it's so funny because we, we targeted them, we went after them, we really, uh, we really talked about their complicity and their profiteering um, in the juvenile military tort system, but also um, in terms of their contracts with ICE and with the private prison system here in the United States. Um, and so... It, you know, a couple months before this tour started, G4S put out a notice that they were going to withdraw all of their contracts 
from the state of Israel that had to do with uh, supplying prisons. Now, we know that they are still invested, and they still have a contract with the new Israeli police academy in East Jerusalem. They signed a 25-year contract in 2015, and that still resides. So they're still a BDS target. But, you know, for G4S in any regard to make any sort of move uh, to terminate their contract with Israel, I mean, that is a huge success. Um, we're speaking with Amanda Weatherspoon and Nadia Tanous. They're uh, on a speaking tour called No Child Behind Bars, Living Resistance from the U.S. to Palestine, and they're speaking to us from Detroit. Amanda, um, what what can be done? What kinds of solutions are there in terms of, you know, really strengthening radical activism, in terms of uh, strengthening that kind of resistance that creates justice from the U.S. to Palestine? Um, what kinds of... Uh, organizational strategic tactics are you looking at and 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 are people talking about when when you're having these conversations with them across the u.s well i think it depends it depends on the arena that we're focusing on and the issue that we're focusing on but i think i can say that it always will come down to coalitions and communities working together um there's power in communities there's power in grassroots too often we wait for the powers that be to make decisions that will positively affect us. And I think we're seeing that that's not really something we can wait on any longer because that is the system that you have to buy into. And most of us don't have the capital to buy into it. So focusing on the power of communities. So that can be coalitions, that can be, you know, communal farming, communal living, taking care of one another, collectives, anything that involves people working together. And while it is hard and it's difficult and it's messy and complicated, I feel like no matter what changes we enact, no matter what kind of mobilization efforts or activism or organizing that we do, it's got to come from the connections between people. People have to be working together and mobilizing and working as a team in this new political climate. We can't be individualized anymore. Nadia, same question. Yeah, I think... You know, a lot of it comes back to organizing, just like Amanda said. We have to look at what our separate challenges are, but also how they intersect, right? So when we talk about liberation in Palestine and liberation in the United States for POC communities, it's not just parallel, right? Like, you can parallel lots of things. We talk about how uh, zones A, B, and C in the West Bank and zoning, right, is reflected here through redlining of the hoods, for example, um, and different borders and how people are excluded from resources or work or uh, access. And so there are definitely parallels, but the, the most powerful thing really is that it's interconnected. Um, you know, we bring up militarization of the police a lot. And part of this is because it's an ongoing, it's, it's always been happening, but in our globalized world, everything is so connected. So it's not just by chance that the gas canisters that are used in the West Bank and in other parts of Palestine showed up in Ferguson in 2013 or showed up in Oakland in 2014, right? Like, this, these are not just coincidences. These are things that um, are kind of, they, they're, they're synced up by militaries and police around the world. And I think when we go and we speak to people in universities, in churches, in union halls, 
um, in so many of the locations where we're, we have the privilege to speak to people, we're really focusing on, okay, here are the systems of oppression. Here's why they target people. It's not just a case-by-case basis. They're much more insidious than that. Here's how they profit from your suffering, you know, in the exact same ways, in many cases, the same system. And this is how you take that down. This is how you deconstruct that. Um, those are the types of conversations we're really having with communities, not just pointing out that these things are parallel, but that they're interconnected and then being interconnected where they're actually easier to take down because it's the same bricks of this wall. Finally, uh, same question to both of you. What gives you hope uh, right now? What, you know, motivates you? Um, what What's one single thing that, that you can point to um, that, that helps you get up in the morning and, and do the work that you do? The sheer power of people. The, the resistance and the resilience. As a black woman, um, resistance just in my bones through my ancestors um, and the insurmountable odds that have been overcome uh, by people of color, by indigenous people here in the United States, by black people who were brought in change, chains, always finding a way to survive and resist. Uh, making connections with each other, laughing, smiling, living, talking, waking up. Um, resistance is what gives me hope because it, resistance in and of itself is revolutionary. Resistance is what will save us. Mm. Mm-hmm. And Nadia? There's so much power in the things and the people that have come before us. So, you know, this is a really bad situation right now. Um, the news that comes out every day, it just seems to get worse. The thing is that it's been, it's been very, very bad before, and people have found ways. Um, our ancestors have survived. They have struggled. They have found a um, method, you know, of getting through, and not just getting through, but making themselves better. And I think what gives me hope is the idea that this next generation, you know, the generation of Ahed and myself and Amanda, you know, we are going to reach emancipation that our grandparents could not reach as much as they tried and that our next generation, right? The generation that comes after us, we might not have to re-educate them on so many things because they might learn it right the first time and they might be wiser and they might be more creative and inventive and find the things, find the keys to liberation that we couldn't find in our try. But I do have hope. I do have the belief that our generation the generation of Ahed and Amanda and myself, we're, we will reach emancipation. We will take it. Um, and we are active, um, we are actors, rather, in it. And therefore, we have a path. And we know where we need to go. And it's, like Amanda said, it's not easy. It's messy. But we have to do it. We're called to this work. And the time is now. Um, Amanda says something that's so striking to me on the tour. She says, the revolution is happening right now. And 50 years down the line, we're going to know what it's called. But right now is when the revolution is happening. So everything that you do and everything that you decide or connect with, every person you connect with, it matters because it's part of the revolution. So don't wait for it. It's happening right, right now. 
Well, with that, uh, that's Nadia Tanous. She's a writer and an organizer, along with Amanda Weatherspoon, a Black liberation activist and minister with the Unitarian Universalists. Uh, they're both uh, on a speaking tour called No Child Behind Bars, Living Resistance from the U.S. to Palestine. Where can people go to get more information on the tour and, uh, and hopefully come see you speak? Yeah, if you go on to either fosna.org's page, that's F-O-S-N-A.org, or in Facebook, you can type in No Child Behind Bars, Poland, Living Resistance from the U.S. to Palestine. We are in our ninth event. We're on our way to University of Michigan, Dearborn, um, and we have 19 cities uh, on this tour in 23 days. So, Um, Please check, make sure uh, if we're going through your city, spread the word, come on out. We would love to engage with you. Awesome. And again, that website is FOSNA, F-O-S-N-A, Friends of Sabeel North America dot org. Uh, Nadia and Amanda, thank you so much for all you do and for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much, Nora. Thank you for all your work. Thank you. And many thanks to Sharif Zakut for the new intro music. Thanks, all of you. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on iTunes, support the Electronic Intifada podcast by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening.